Hi everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and tonight in our 49th session exploring Tolkien's Middle-earth, we are going to delve into chapter 5 of book 4 of The Two Towers. We are going to look at the window on the west, and we are going to talk a lot about Faramir. We have 16 slides to cover tonight, mostly in our discussion of the best of all men, Faramir of Gondor. That's a lot to get through, so I'm not going to spend too much time right here up front particularly because I'm running just a little late coming into this rescheduled, uh, this rescheduled session because I just concluded the second session in our patron-exclusive book club discussion of Madeleine Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time. If you don't yet support Point North Media, either via Patreon at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia or through coffee at ko-fi.com slash pointnorthmedia or paypal.me slash pointnorthmedia, if you don't yet support... Uh, Point North Media in one of those ways, then you don't yet have access to those book club discussions, and you really should. They're really super fun. You can also, of course, take part in conversations regarding There and Back Again over on the Point North Forum at pointnorthmedia.com slash forum, where I had the opportunity this last week to answer some really interesting questions, some really deep and, and crunchy questions about the deep history of Middle-earth, particularly the deep history of the Istari, which was, uh, was absolutely fascinating. And there is now over on the forum, too, I should say, just to give credit to uh, Joseph and Becky both of whom are joining us tonight. Uh, there is now a Deep Space Nine rewatch taking place over on the Point North Media Forum. Go take part in that. Deep Space Nine is really, really good, you guys. It's my favorite Star Trek, and I can't wait to talk about it more. They've, they've picked a handful of episodes from the first season that we're going to work through, and I'm looking forward very much to those discussions. Thank you all, of course, for your incredibly generous support. With all of that, let's get right into it. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Digital Janitor and Ryan, and Elizabeth is joining us, and Eve and Angela is here. And I think I just saw Nick joining us for the first time. Excellent. Guys, thank you all so much for being here this evening for our discussion of Faramir and some other things tangentially too, but, you know, mostly Faramir. Let's begin with, um, let's begin with uh, the first slide from tonight's reading, the very beginning of the chapter and the return of Faramir and some talk of Isildur's bane. It seemed to Sam that he had only dozed for a few minutes when he awoke to find that it was late afternoon and Faramir had come back. He had brought many men with him. Indeed, all the survivors of the foray were now gathered on the slope nearby, two or three hundred strong. They sat in a wide semicircle, between the arms of which Faramir was seated on the ground, while Frodo stood before him. It looked strangely like the trial of a prisoner. Sam crept out from the fern, but no one paid any attention to him, and he placed himself at the end of the rows of men where he could see and hear all that was going on. He watched and listened intently, ready to dash to his master's aid if needed. He could see Faramir's face, which was now unmasked. It was stern and commanding, and a keen wit lay behind his searching glance. Doubt was in the grey eyes that gazed steadily at Frodo. Sam soon became aware that the captain was not satisfied with Frodo's account of himself at several points, what part he had to play in the company that set out from Rivendell, why he had left Boromir, and where he was now going. In particular, he returned often to Isildur's bane. Plainly, he saw that Frodo was concealing from him some matter of great importance. But it was at the coming of the halfling that... Excuse me, but it was at the coming of the halfling that Isildur's bane should waken, or so, or so one must read the words, he insisted. If then you are the halfling that was named, doubtless you brought this thing, whatever it may be, to the council of which you speak, and there Boromir saw it. Do you deny it? Frodo made no answer. So, said Faramir, I wish then to learn from you more of it. For what concerns Boromir concerns me. An orc arrow slew Isildur, so far as the old tales tell, but orc arrows are plenty, and a sight of one would not be taken as a sign of doom by Boromir of Gondor. Had you this thing in keeping? It is hidden, you say. But is, that, is not that because you choose to hide it? No. 
Not because I choose, answered Frodo. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to any mortal, great or small, though if any could claim it, it would be Aragorn, son of Arathorn, whom I named the leader of our company from Moria to Raros. Faramir's knowledge of Isildur's bane is fascinating. We know, of course, that this was news to Boromir at the council, that they had heard tell of Isildur's bane, that it had popped up in the little prophetic rhyme which had led Boromir all the way from Gondor to Rivendell in the first place to seek the, uh, seek the, the legendary knowledge of Elrond at Rivendell. And while Faramir is aware of it and is able to logically deduce from the poem it might seem even more than Boromir was able to logically deduce from the poem, he doesn't know its true nature. That true nature is going to be inadvertently revealed to him in the course of this reading, in fact. But already we can see Faramir trying to do his best with limited information. And it's interesting, kind of, as we come into this chapter, as part of the reflection between book four and book three of The Two Towers here, it is interesting to note how similar this feels. Here, Frodo and Sam are held by, at least interrogated by, this host of men from Gondor in a similar way to the way in which Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli were held or interrogated by the men of Rohan. Remember the scene when, when Aragorn is taken by, is, is beset by the host of the Rohirrim led by Eomer, and they have the discussion about what they are doing crossing Rohan, fleeing desperately into the west in the pursuit of the orcs who have taken Merry and Pippin. It's a similar kind of beat. But of course, those, the echoes of those beats, the significance of that beat is, is completely different here. Frodo is, not meeting, Frodo is not meeting Faramir as Aragorn met Eomer as something like an equal, not an equal, of course. Aragorn is the king, though Eomer is a, a man of valiant heart and, and dauntless spirit. He's not quite on Aragorn's level. It's not quite compatible in that sense, but certainly Aragorn and Eomer are closer than uh, Frodo and Faramir here, and Faramir is questioning very deeply, yes. <laughs> and Ryan's saying, I like how Sam's just chilling in the fern. Wasn't there another hobbit around here? Completely consistent, of course, with the echoes of, of Elrond's council back in chapter two of uh, book two of the Fellowship of the Ring, of course. Yes, this is, this is Sam's MO. Sam is recognized by all as a servant which would please him greatly, I think. Here he is, not interposing himself into these great deeds and great significant conversations, but rather watching from the sidelines, ready to, to dash in and, and protect or to serve his master, I suppose, in the broadest possible sense. That is Sam's priority here, to serve Frodo in whatever way is most appropriate. But in the absence of that necessity, he's perfectly willing just to listen and to see what unfolds here. Faramir kind of deducing the story here too. If you were the halfling that was named, doubtless you brought this thing, whatever it may be, to the council of which you speak. Okay, that is consistent with the rhyme that we've seen previously. And there Boromir saw it, do you deny it? Frodo stays silent. Frodo will not lie on the subject of the ring, but what Frodo has to say next is very significant. So, said Faramir, I wish then to learn from you more of it, and what concerns Boromir concerns me. An orc arrow slew Isildur so far as the old tales tell. Yes, correct, accurate. Isildur fell at the Battle of the Gladden Field. He launched himself into the river, into Anduin, to try and escape the orc host that had fallen upon them, that had, that had, had uh, assaulted them in an ambush and was slain by many orc arrows. That is true. That is not Isildur's bane. What doom befell Isildur did not occur at the Battle of Gladden Field. It had already happened to him. It was already in the ongoing process of happening to him by that point. And then Frodo has the perfect response. 
Had you this thing in keeping, it is hidden, you say, but is, is not that because you choose to hide it? No, not because I choose, answered Frodo. It does not belong to me. It does not belong to any mortal, great or small. And then Frodo pivots in an unexpected direction. Though if any could claim it, it would be Aragorn, son of Arathorn, whom I named the leader of our company from Moria to Rauros. Really, Frodo? By what right does Aragorn lay claim to Isildur's bane? By what right does Aragorn lay claim to the ring? Except that, of course, it was Isildur's. Isildur was, to the degree that any mortal may be the rightful owner of the ring, the last rightful owner of the ring. He was the last person to hold it, to claim it outright. Now, of course, Gollum has since claimed it. He took his birthday present from Deagle on the banks of the Anduin in the, the dim and distant long ago, 500 years before the present. But that was never a, a rightful claiming of something that belonged to him. And in part, that seems to be because it's too great an artifact for a small creature like Gollum. This seems to be one of the things that, that Frodo is asserting about the ring, that the ring belongs to the world of great man, capital G, capital M, and the way that those words are capitalized or not capitalized through this chapter is fascinating in and of itself, right? This idea that the men of Numenor are still part of that ancient tradition of greatness, of grandeur, that, that mythic tradition that is now reshaping the face of Middle-earth. Frodo seems to be asserting that that is true of the ring too, that it belongs to myth, that it belongs to the great unfolding history of Middle-earth and is too great to be contained, to be held, to be possessed, to be owned by any mortal, arguably, but certainly no mortal as insignificant as a hobbit. Yeah. Um, yes, Rayla Lynn points out here, it's reassuring that Frodo is still distancing himself from the ring. And we note this... <sighs> This is one of the many things that I wish I just had more time to delve into, but we note this in part because of the transition into Athelion, right? We, we talked about this in our last session, that as we come out of the blasted land surrounding Moran and surrounding the Black Gate and Gollum leads them south into the Vale of Athelion between the mountains to the east and the Anduin to the west, right? That this, this green and pleasant land, uh, beloved of the men of Gondor, though it has fallen itself into shadow, this used to be a garden. And like Holland on the western flank of the Misty Mountains, this is a place where goodness can still be felt. And we talked about Frodo breathing more comfortably here, expressing himself more comfortably. Some measure of strength has been restored to him because he is not now so utterly under the thrall of the shadow as once he was. The inverse of that is going to become apparent to us within the span of the next few chapters. We're going to see Frodo fall into a, dar uh, fall into a darkness, which is not just geographical, not just environmental, but is much more profound than that. But here in the Garden of Athelion, Frodo is able to distance himself from the ring somewhat. And you'll note, too, the way that Gollum has kind of fallen out of the narrative, right? That's for good reasons of plot. That's for, for very clear and understandable and well-motivated reasons. Gollum is in hiding right now because this host of men has taken Frodo and Sam. But it's more than that. I think that here in the Garden of Athelion, Frodo doesn't need Gollum the way that he did when they were crossing the Dead Marshes, when they were crossing, you know, the, the plain of Dagorlad up to Moranon itself. He doesn't need that hope. More on hope in just a moment. Let's move on to our next slide here. Faramir already, actually, before we move on to our next slide, Faramir already just kind of wonderful. As Sam watches, he could see Faramir's face, which was now unmasked. It was stern and commanding, and a keen wit lay behind his searching glance. Doubt was in the gray eyes that gazed steadily at Frodo. Faramir possessed not just of intellect, not just of, of wit about him here, not just this keen wit, but it was stern and commanding. He is 
a great man, capital G, capital M, a possible alternate title for this week's session. It is worth noting that in a letter written in 1956, Tolkien notes, quote, As far as any character is like me, it is Faramir, except that I lack what all my characters possess, in brackets, let the psychoanalysts note, courage. Tolkien's willingness, his his eagerness to identify Faramir as being like himself and to identify, and I don't think I'm, I'm, you know, putting too much weight on the professor's words here because I think this was absolutely what he intended, to identify himself as being in the, the, the mode and model of a man like Faramir speaks both to Tolkien's sense of his own place in the world, certainly, well, talking about, you know, the relationship between England and the rest of the world during the Second World War in particular, looking back to the First World War too, but looking at the Second World War, Tolkien noted that, yes, he would he would take arms reluctantly, but he would take arms and would serve faithfully that he would fight in order to preserve for the future something better than they now faced, something better than the shadow that had fallen across it. He's not unwilling to dedicate his life to service. He was absolutely willing to dedicate his life to service in exactly the way that Faramir is. It is interesting to note, however, that he draws that distinguishing line between himself and Faramir, between himself and all of his characters, as he notes, that I lack what all my characters possess. I think here it's it's fair to interpret that as his heroic characters, as his protagonist characters. Courage. He sees this failure within himself. He sees what we might think of within the, the span of his secondary creation is a diminution of that Numenorean ancestry, right? That he does not possess the, the requisite greatness that Faramir still possesses, that, that there is still greatness in Gondor, as Boromir would have argued, though Faramir is perhaps the best encapsulation of that. Now I want Eowyn, says Becca Eller in the chat, and yep, we'll get there. We will definitely get there. Um, let me see here. Faramir is obviously the brains of the family, says Heroes and Parts. Well, the brains of the family, yes, but also the humility of the family, right? This, this is what really separates Faramir and Boromir, is that Faramir, I mean, this has already happened, right? This battle has already been fought. To the degree that there was a battle, it has already been fought. Who should go to Rivendell? Who is the greatest son of the House of Denethor, stewards of Gondor? Should it be Faramir who goes north to consult with... Oh, no, no, of course it shouldn't be. Of course it shouldn't be. It should be Boromir. Boromir is the exceptional man. Boromir is the, the greatest paragon of Gondorian virtue, in every sense, both good and bad, and not to get into like Aristotelian virtue ethics here, but not all of the virtues of Gondor are virtues which the rest of the world would hold to be good. Strength, yes, a certain indefatigable spirit, a willingness to serve, a willingness to fight, to see yourself as the boundary between light and dark, yes, all of these things, but also an arrogance, a lack of kingly humility. It is actually in no way ironic. I was going to casually say it is ironic that Faramir and Boromir are separated by that humility, but it's not in any way ironic. It is absolutely purposeful, in fact, that Boromir is in some sense compromised by his desire to be Boromir of Gondor, to be king, as Faramir will lay out for us in the next few pages. And Faramir is simply not. He is consent to, uh, content to serve. He is content to be the steward of Gondor in the wake of his father, and that makes him a better king than Boromir would ever have been. It makes him closer to being a king than Boromir ever was. But simultaneously, of course, it makes him closer to Sam. I have to get through all of my slides tonight because we absolutely have to talk about the last slide that I have pulled from this chapter, which is the final good night between Faramir and Sam. And 
Uh, one of my favorite passages in the entire book. That said, let's move on and talk about Frodo's friendship with Boromir. I've pulled quite a few slides. I'm, I'm kind of reluctant always to, to shorten these readings to just the content that I pull for the slides. That is particularly the case in, in this chapter. It's, it's really quite wonderful. Um, let me see here as I catch up. Oh, interesting. Ryan says, I think it's interesting that the difference between Boromir's and Faramir's initial characterization, Boromir is described as fair and noble and proud and stern of glance, while Faramir is stern and commanding, but adds that keen wit, shows a similarity, but drawing a keen difference. Absolutely, right? Fair and noble. Well, these are ambiguous things, right? Nobility is good. Beauty is good, but they are not unambiguously good. Wit. Wit is unambiguously good in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, particularly in the frame of The Lord of the Rings. Not to say that intelligence is good, right? We've got to be careful here of modern connotation here. Wit is good. The ability to discern, the ability to infer, the ability to apply wisdom to a situation facing you, these are the connotations of wit that Tolkien was referencing here. There is a stark separation between Faramir, possessed of this keen wit, and someone like Saruman, possessed of a cunning mind. A cunning mind and a keen wit, while we might use those almost interchangeably in a modern context, those mean very different things in the frame of, of Tolkien's experience, in the frame of, you know, medieval virtue politics, in the frame of the Lord of the Rings. Those are very, very different things. Wit, yes, wit, as Andrea calls out here in the chat, wit is more like wisdom. Um, Yes, in the sense that wit is a necessary component of wisdom, right? The ability to discern, the ability to, to see and to apprehend and to understand, those are necessary components of, of wisdom. Right? You have to be able to understand what is presented to you in order to exercise wisdom. It is possible, I think, to have wisdom without wit, but it is difficult to enact wisdom without wit. But nothing here is cunning. Nothing here is shrewd. Nothing here is calculating in that Saromanian tradition that we've discussed uh, so freely in, in book three here. Yeah. Yes. And Nikki says, I see wit here is more like good discernment and intuition. Yes, both there, I think. You're absolutely right. A sense of intuition too, though it's interesting that Faramir, well, Faramir is going to kind of take that, that, that same path that Aragorn walks, right? Aragorn also possessed of a great wit, but also possessed of something greater than wit. And it's almost intuition. It's almost faith. It's almost just a kind of, of extant and objective virtue, right? And when we talk about Aragorn, we talk about it in terms of kingliness, right? What should he do at Parth Gallon? Should he go after Frodo and Sam or should he go after Merry and Pippin? This is the choice that, that afflicts him at the beginning of book three of the Two Towers. And he, he wrestles with this for a moment and then decides, no, this is the logical path to go after Frodo and Sam. Like there, there's something there. There is an argument at least to be made there. Certainly Frodo and Sam are in the context of the greater conflict of Middle-earth in greater need of his assistance. Though that is not to say that his assistance would actually aid them significantly or sufficiently. But going after Merry and Pippin is the right thing to do. And Faramir has that too, as Elrond has that, as Gandalf has that, right? Why don't we kill Gollum? Well, because he has a part to play. Because there is not no hope, there is a little hope about Gollum, and because he has a part to play. We have the emotional tug and the intellectual tug. We have the wit and the wisdom, if you like, right? These two things are combined in Gandalf, in Elrond, in... Elrond's, if I understand it right, all that I have heard, right? We see that perfect combination of these two virtues, the, the, the intelligence and wisdom stance, if you're inclined toward a D&D &D character sheet for any of these characters. So now we're talking about Frodo's friendship with Boromir.
A murmur of astonishment ran through all the ring of men. Some cried aloud, The sword of Elendil! The sword of Elendil comes to Minas Tirith! Great tidings! But Faramir's face was unmoved. Maybe, he said, but so great a claim will need to be established, and clear proofs will be required should this Aragorn ever come to Minas Tirith. He had not come, nor any of your company, when I set out six days ago. Boromir was satisfied of that claim, said Frodo. Indeed, if Boromir were here, he would answer all your questions. And since he was already at Roros many days back and intended then to go straight to your city, if you return, may, you may soon learn the answers there. My part in the company was known to him, as to all the others, for it was appointed to me by Elrond of Imladris himself before the whole council. On that errand I came into this country, but it is not mine to reveal to any outside the company. Yet those who claim to oppose the enemy would do well not to hinder it. Frodo's tone was proud, whatever he felt, and Sam approved of it, but it did not appease Faramir. So he said. You bid me to mind my own affairs, to get me back home and let you be. Boromir will tell all when he comes. When he comes, say you, were you a friend of Boromir? Vividly before Frodo's mind came the memory of Boromir's assault upon him, and for a moment he hesitated. Faramir's eyes watching him grew harder. Boromir was a valiant member of our company, said Frodo at length. Yes, I was his friend for my part. Faramir smiled grimly. Then, it would gr then you would grieve to learn that Boromir is dead. I would grieve indeed, said Frodo. Then, catching the look in Faramir's eyes, he faltered. Dead, he said. Do you mean that he is dead and that you knew it? You've been trying to trap me in words, playing with me? Or are you now trying to snare me with a falsehood? I would not snare even an orc with a falsehood, said Faramir. Another echo there of the conversation with Eomer out there on the plains of Rohan. You know, we of the men of the Rohirrim do not tell lies and thus are not easily lied to, Right. Honesty, a virtue of great men, a virtue of all good men. I would not snare even an orc with a falsehood, said Faramir. Okay, these are the sworn enemies of my people, and I will hunt them, and I will kill them, and have before, and will again. This is a thing that I will do. This is, in a sense, who I am, but I will not compromise my own virtue for that. I will hold to honesty. I am trying to trap you. Yes, in a sense, I'm trying to get the truth from you. That is the purpose of this interrogation, but I will not lie to accomplish that goal. Heroes and Bard said, did Frodo and Boromir ever exchange words that weren't arguing about the ring? Um, in the text, rarely, rarely, um, we can infer some conversations that may have taken place outside of the, the context of the, the prose on the page, but yes, rarely. Was Boromir a friend to Frodo is perhaps a different question, but... And of course, even then, I'm, I'm called upon, I'm summoned forth to defend Boromir here in this instance. It's very easy, following a superficial reading of the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, to come into this conflict in particular, this, this sequence in particular, with the idea that Boromir was a traitor, with the idea that Boromir faltered, and Boromir did falter. But as Aragorn says, he gained a great victory, an unparalleled victory. He resisted the lure of the Ring. If not for Boromir, Merry and Pippin would have been... Well, they were taken, but may have been killed outright. There would be no hope if not for Boromir. He died a hero. He died a great man of Gondor. That's important that we, we recall this, yes. And Ray Lynn says, the worst way to find out about a friend's death. Yes, it's... It's pretty tough. Oh, Seastar says, I'm too visually impaired to see people's eyes most of the time, so I always wondered what it meant for someone's eyes to get harder and such subtle expressions. What's really interesting about that, Seastar, is that... It's also, I think, very hard for, for people who are, are, you know, perfectly sighted to, uh, to see that always. 
the kinds of expressions that we get from Faramir are indicative of someone who actually has a fairly open emotional range, right? He is he is extremely communicative, even to Sam. And we must remember, Sam is sitting apart from Frodo and Faramir in the, 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 uh, the wings of this great ring of men surrounding Faramir and Frodo at this point. Sam is some distance away. We don't know exactly how far, but there were two or three hundred men arrayed around Faramir and Frodo. So it's a distance. But here Sam even can interpret what Faramir is feeling, and that too seems to be indicative of wit, indicative of wisdom, but not indicative of that cunning mind that we've associated with Saruman. Yeah, good, good. Okay, let's keep moving on because Sam has had enough. Sam had been getting more and more impatient and angry at this conversation. These last words were more than he could bear, and bursting into the middle of the ring, he strode up to his master's side. Begging your pardon, Master Frodo, he said, but this has gone on long enough. He's no right to talk to you so. After all you've gone through with as much for his good and all these great men as for anyone else. See here, Captain. He planted himself squarely in front of Faramir, his hands on his hips and a look on his face as if he were addressing a young hobbit who had offered him what he called sauce when questioned about visits to the orchard. There was some murmuring, but also some grins on the faces of the men looking on. The sight of their captain sitting on the ground, eye to eye with a young hobbit, legs well apart, bristling with wrath, was one beyond their experience. See here, he said, what are you driving at? Let's come to the point before all the orcs of Mordor come down on us. If you think my master murdered this Boromir and then ran away, you've got no sense. But say it and have done. And then let us know what you mean to do about it. But it's a pity that folk who talk about fighting the enemy can't let others do their bit in their own way without interfering. He'd be mighty pleased if he could see you now, think he got a new friend he would. Patience, said Faramir, but without anger. Do not speak before your master whose wit is greater than yours. And I do not need any to teach me of our peril. Even so, I spare a brief time in order to judge justly in a hard matter. Were I as hasty as you, I might have slain you long ago. For I am commanded to slay all whom I find in this land without the leave of the Lord of Gondor. But I do not slay man or beast needlessly, and not gladly even when it is needed. Neither do I talk in vain. So be comforted, sit by your master, and be silent. Sam sat down heavily with a red face. Faramir turned to Frodo again. You asked, how do I know that the son of Denethor is dead? Tidings of death have many wings. Night oft brings news to near kindred, tis said. Boromir was my brother. Just take a moment as we take a moment. All too often, here on there and back again, just to love Sam a little bit, just to love Sam, because he's terrific. And I love, my favorite part of this entire exchange isn't even Sam, it's the grins, of the, fa uh, the grins on the faces of the assembled men here who are looking at Faramir, just sitting on the grass, confronting Frodo, just, just engaged in this, this battle of wits here, only to have this hobbit puffed up with, with, with righteousness, not even like, like uh, an indignance, but, but an actual self-righteousness interposing himself between Faramir and Frodo and demanding to know what it is that Faramir is doing, what it is that Faramir is accusing Frodo of. It's just lovely. And I'm thinking too of Sam with his hands on his hips, and I'm reminded of last week's reading when we were talking about his Oliphant poem, when he has his hands behind his back when speaking poetry. This kind of performative aspect of Sam Gamgee, not performative in the sense that he is that he is misrepresenting himself, but it is performative in the sense of, of the theatricality of it, right? There is a way that things are done. And when you are confronting the Lord of Gondor, when you are confronting the, the, the watch captain of Gondor, then you stand with your hands on your hips. That's how you confront a man of this mark, a man of this order. And of course, he's absolutely right. Let us know what you mean to do about it, but it's a pity that folk who talk about fighting the enemy can't let others do their bit in their own way without interfering. And you'll note too that as Sam gets more and more upset, 
His language skews more and more back toward the Shire. His language is his dialogue skews more and more back toward old Hamfast Gamgee, right? The, to the, the, the gaffer. It's a pity that folk as talk about fighting the enemy can't let others do their bit in their own way without interfering. He'd be mighty pleased if he could see you now. Think he'd got a new friend he would. A stark accusation from Sam here. And again, another echo of the conversation between Aragorn and Aomer, between a lot of the conversations that we had back at back at, at Edoras and Menethald, and then, you know, at Helm's Deep, and then ultimately at, uh, at Isengard itself, of course. These are the same conflicts happening in the West and the East now, on, on the two sides of the Anduin. But Faramir's response is perfect. It is utterly considered. Do not speak before your master whose wit is greater than yours. I recognize you, Sam. And, and that, I think, can actually read very... That can come across as very harsh to a contemporary reader. But, of course, what Faramir is recognizing here is Sam's role, because it is not unlike Faramir's own role. These are both men who, while very different in stature, both, you know, physical and kind of uh, what political, I suppose, while very different in stature, they are very similar in their sense of loyalty and their sense of fealty and service. Do not speak before your master whose wit is greater than yours, and I do not need you to teach me of our peril. Okay, do not speak before your master whose wit is greater than yours. And then we segue immediately to, were I as hasty as you, I might have slain you long ago, for I am commanded to slay all whom I find in this land without the leave of the Lord of Gondor. That is his instruction. That is his order. Slay everyone you find there. But me no buts, Faramir. You head on out to, to Ithilien and you kill everyone you find. Everyone who's not a member of your company or can't, you know, flash their little little uh, Minas Tirith badge there, you kill them outright. That's, that's what you are for. But Faramir here is exercising judgment. And it's a kind of judgment that we haven't really had an open opportunity to examine in the frame of the Lord of the Rings. Faramir is not just following orders. And that is a crucial point of distinction when it comes to virtue and heroism. Service, yes, service is vital. Service is a great virtue to serve your king or your lord, the steward of Gondor in this case, your father in this case, as is revealed right here at the end of the slide. To serve those to whom you rightly owe your fealty, that is absolutely vital. But you do not serve blindly. You serve the spirit more than you serve the letter. And again, right, think back to Edoras, think back to, to Hama standing at the, the standing as door warden to the golden hall there, right? This negotiation between Hama and Aragorn about the yielding of, of his sword before he can go in to see Theoden King. That discussion is exactly the same as this discussion in its resonance. We're, we're seeing two characters who have been given very clear instructions. No weapons are allowed into the hall. But obviously, like, we understand what that means and we understand the why of it. We are still thinking people. Service does not demand a kind of, of worm-tongue you know, obsequiousness. It doesn't demand a complete surrender of one's own wit. It actually demands that wit. It demands that, that full faculty given in the service to your master in exactly the same way as, as Sam is now demonstrating that faculty in the service of Frodo. Andrea says, uh, <laughs> Shane says first, freeze, ministerial agents, badge and number. I like that very much, right? Yes, if we could just get this recast into, oh, that's what Bright is, isn't it? Yeah, okay, we need a better version of this than Bright, which is currently airing on Netflix, which is a paper-thin allegory uh, and, and really not terribly impressive at all. Um, yes, uh, we need, uh, what would that be? That would be... Uh, 
<laughs> Law and Order Special Mordor Unit, something along those lines? I don't know. Uh, Andrea says, though, Faramir's judgment and ability to wisely judge is a crucial moment. Yes, and will be tested again a handful of times as we move through this chapter. That's a great call, Andrea. Um, and, and Nikki observes, yes, thank God Faramir is, Athili uh, is in Athelion and not some blindly serving lord or soldier, right? What if this had been Boromir? What if those roles had been switched? The betrayal of Boromir at Parthgallon, that momentary betrayal, that momentary uh, succumbing to temptation at Parthgallon is a terrible moment, right? That is one of the darkest moments in the entire book. That is a moment of, of near despair, a, a real challenge to our sense of hope in, in the successful outcome of this quest. It is very, very bad. But if these roles had been switched and if... Faramir had gone to, to Rivendell and had accompanied the Fellowship on their way south, and Boromir had instead taken Faramir's place here on the eastern banks of the Anduin, here in Ithilien, and Frodo had, at Parthgallon, presumably still separated himself from the company. That was already on the cards long before he actually left. You know, he had been giving this some thoughts anyway. If Frodo and Sam had here been captured by Boromir, would it have turned out like this? Would Boromir have, well... Boromir may not have killed them outright, but there is another conflict later in this chapter that would certainly have turned out differently and turned out even more disastrously. So nothing ever goes truly bad in Lord of the Rings, right? Even moments of evil, even moments of weakness, even moments of, of the failure of our courage, the failure of our hope, even moments of despair or near despair turn to good in the end. Yeah. Um, let me see here. Where are we? The elves. Uh, Nick says the elves coming to the rescue at Helm's Deep and not getting the Aomer and Gimli brother in arms. Oh, are we talking about uh, the the movie versions? Yeah, the movie version of Faramir. You guys, I like the performance very much, but yeah, there were only a handful of, of moments that that survived that adaptation with Faramir, which is just too bad. In fact, so here we get the account of Faramir finding Boromir. Five days ere I sent out I set out on this venture. Eleven days ago, at about this hour of the day, I heard the blowing of that horn. From the northward it seemed but dim, as if it were but an echo in the mind. A boding of ill we thought it, my father and I, for no tidings had we heard of Boromir since he went away, and no watcher on our borders had seen him pass. And on the third night, after another and a stranger thing befell me, I sat at night by the waters of Anduin, in the grey dark under the young pale moon, watching the ever-moving stream and the sad reeds were rustling. So do we ever watch the shores Niles Gilead, which our enemy now partly hold, and issue from it to harry our lands. But that night all the world slept at the midnight hour. Then I saw, or it seemed that I saw, a boat floating on the water, glimmering grey, a small boat of a strange fashion with a high prow, and there was none to row or steer it. An awe fell on me, for the pale light was round it. But I rose and went to the bank and began to walk out into the stream, for I was drawn toward it. Then the boat turned toward me and stayed its pace, and floated slowly by within my hand's reach, yet I durst not handle it. I, it waded deep as if it were heavily burdened, and it seemed to me as it passed under my gaze that it was almost filled with clear water from which came the light, and lapped in the water a warrior lay asleep. A broken sword was on his knee. I saw many wounds on him. It was Boromir, my brother, dead. I knew his gear, his sword, his beloved face. One thing only I missed, his horn. One thing only I knew not, a fair belt, as if it were of linked golden leaves about his waist. Boromir, I cried, where is thy horn? Whither goest thou, O Boromir? But he was gone. The boat turned into the stream and passed glimmering on into the night. Dreamlike it was, and yet no dream, for there was no waking. And I do not doubt that he is dead. It has passed down the river to the sea. 
Yes, Joseph is calling out here. Uh, so I saw or seemed that I saw. This does not seem like a small distinction. If this is a vision, what are we to make of it? I don't think that it's a vision in the traditional sense. That is to say that, do I believe physically that the elven crafted boat into which uh, Boromir were laying, uh, did this pass to the south? Yes, I think so. I think this is what actually happened to Boromir, but it is more than that. The pale light, right? And and the pale light is always interesting in Tolkien because the pale light, we just recently, very recently, in fact, saw the pale light associated with, you know, the Gollum and Smeagol conflict. And it's very tempting to look at the pale light and see within that pale light some, some goodness, some ethereal, otherworldly goodness that is being extended here into the world. And I'm not sure that that's always true. I'm certainly not sure that we can, we can draw a hard and fast rule that pale light equals good, you know, and, and of course, a pale light meaning just like a soft white glow? Is that kind of how we're supposed to represent that? Who can say? But this grayish, silvery glow that is of the elves, that is associated with, you know, elven enchantment, there is something more here than a than a literal experience for Faramir, right? There is, is more of, of significance here. Um, then the boat turned towards me and stayed its pace. It, it slowed down and floated slowly by within my hands, yet I, yet I durst not handle it. It weighted deep as if it were heavily burdened, and it seemed to me as it passed under my gaze that it was almost filled with clear water from which came the light, and lapped in the water a warrior lay asleep. So the boat, as it is coming down, accompanied by this pale light, accompanied on this this peculiarly peaceful night, right? This boat comes, it turns, it slows, it passes by Faramir, giving him the opportunity to speak to his brother, to see his brother dead, yes, but also to speak to his brother. And look at the words that Faramir uses. Boromir, I cried, where is thy horn? Whither goest thou, O Boromir? Whither goest thou? Where is thy horn? Faramir has elevated his language here. He has moved into a, a higher register here. And that's crucial. Faramir recognizes, both in his use of language, in his recognition of the pale light, in his refusal to reach out and touch it, right? Um, uh, where are we? Uh, it's uh, floated slowly by within my hand's reach, yet I durst not handle it. I dared not handle it, right? He does not extend his hand out. He is recognizing that this is some kind of magic. This is some kind of fairy here. And that's represented too by the the circle of golden leaves that Boromir wears at his waist, this this belt that was given to him by Gladriel, which Frodo is about to explain to Faramir and say, oh no, that, I can absolutely account for that too, by the way. His horn is gone, but his belt is there. He is otherworldly. He has been taken into the embrace of the elves in part. He is now carrying with him some of that, some, some token of that elven spirit, some token of that greater virtue, right? This isn't just about had Boromir actually died in despair, had he actually succumbed, had he actually betrayed the entire fellowship, had he not conquered his desire for the ring, then perhaps this would have turned out very differently. But he was given not just a warrior's burial, not just a warrior's death, but a hero's death. And that hero's death has now elevated him somewhat. That seems to be the, the region here, uh, the reading here, rather. Um, Erica says, I just see Faramir worrying about his brother who he hasn't heard news from in ages. It's a dangerous time. Then he finally sees him slowly on the river, but it's such a short time. He doesn't know what happened. He doesn't have time to say goodbye. Just so heartbreaking. Erica, I completely agree. I completely agree. It's, uh, it's absolutely shocking. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to read and, and heartbreaking too. Yes. 
And Shane says, I like the idea that the river will still take care of the son of Gondor, like Aragorn said, right? That, that's exactly, exactly tying back to what Aragorn said when they laid him out, that we will entrust to the care of the great river. We will entrust to Anduin the care of Boromir. And it turns out that between Anduin and the elven boat and Boromir's virtue, something like peace has been achieved. And note that last line. It's very easy to miss that last line. And I do not doubt that he is dead and has passed down the river to the sea. Firstly, I do not doubt that this thing that I saw is, if not actually true, if not literally true, I'm not doubting that. Faramir is doubting that, which is where we get that I, I saw or seemed to see. Um, he, he's doubting his own, like, his, his sense here. Not, he's not questioning it as though it were something that he imagined, right? I have been worried about Boromir, and I had on the banks of the Anduin a vision that my brother was dead. No, he has been shown the truth. Dream like it was, and yet no dream, for there was no waking, Right? The literal part of that, for there was no waking, it obviously wasn't a dream because it's true. It, it has stuck with me. It has endured. There was no moment when I got to, to wake suddenly and, and question its accuracy. No, it is completely continuous and contiguous with the rest of my experience. Dreamlike it was, and yet no dream, for there was no waking. So it was dreamlike. It was otherworldly. It was ethereal. And yet, I do not doubt that he is dead and has passed down the river to the sea. That passing to the sea is, of course, a gesture of hope. That is itself a, a recognition that Boromir has has kind of moved beyond the mortal realm, you know, not just his, his body, but his being, that he has been properly, <sighs> properly revered, I suppose, in his, uh, revered is the wrong word, but properly honored, I suppose, in his, in his death here. Ryan says, I really like Faramir's description of the horn as a family heirloom, which adds more to the horn of Boromir and him hearing it from so far away and not, not being able to help is really powerful. Yeah. Um, it's also very, emblematic of greater conflicts in Tolkien's world. We'll have the opportunity to talk about this kind of family heirloom when we talk about the Silmarillion, when we talk about the Silmarils specifically, yes. Yes, as Angela, as Angela notes, uh, he was redeemed and ascended. Yes, exactly right, exactly right. Um, uh, Nikki asks, in Gondorian lore, is it acknowledged that you return to Iluvatar when you die? I don't think this is ever discussed. Well, you know what? <laughs> okay. No, it is not. And this is going to be particularly relevant in tonight's reading because in tonight's reading, we get one of, we get the most striking. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and declare this to be unequivocally true. We get the most striking piece of religious observance that we get in the entire book, right? We'll, we'll, we'll skip ahead and we'll get to that. But no, we don't know enough about Religion? Religion seems like too small a word to encompass this, right? But we don't know enough about religion within the, the frame of the men of Numenor, period, let alone, you know, the descendants of the men of Numenor in Gondor. But yes, yes. Good. Okay. Um, excellent. Let's keep moving onward here, uh, because Frodo wants to talk about the cleaving of the horn here. You pass through the hidden land, said Faramir, but it seems like you little understood its power. If men have dealings with the mistress of magic who dwells in the golden wood then they may look for strange things to follow. For it is perilous for mortal men to walk out of the world of this sun, and few of old came thence unchanged, his said. Boromir, oh, Boromir, he cried. What did she say to you, the lady that dies not? What did she see? What woke in your heart then? Why went you to Laurel and Dornanan? <laughs> Laurel and Dornanan, excuse me, and came not by your own road upon the horses of Rohan riding home in the morning? Then turning again to Frodo, he spoke in a quiet voice once more. To those questions, I guess, that you could make some answer, Frodo, son of Drogo. But not here or now, maybe. But lest you still should think my tale a vision, I will tell you this. The horn of Boromir at least returned in truth and not in seeming. 
The horn came, but it was cloven in two, as it were, by axe or sword. The shards came severally to shore. One was found among the reeds where watchers of Gondor lay, northwards blown the infalls of the antwash. The other was found spinning on the flood by one who had an errand on the water. Strange chances, but murder will out, tis said. And now the horn of the elder son dies in two pieces upon the lap of Danathor. Excuse me, I think I said dies when what I meant was lies, but that was a Freudian slip, I apologize. And now the horn of the elder son lies in two pieces upon the lap of Denethor, sitting in his high chair waiting for news. Then you can tell me nothing of the cleaving of the horn? No, I did not know of it, said Frodo. But the day when you heard it blowing, if your reckoning is true, was the day when we parted, when I and my servant left the company. And now your tale fills me with dread, for if Boromir was then in peril and was slain, I must fear that all my companions perished too, and they were my kindred and my friends. Will you not put aside your doubt of me and let me go? I am weary and full of grief and afraid, but I have a deed to do or to attempt before I too am slain, and the more need of haste if we two halflings are all that remain of our fellowship. Go back, Faramir, valiant captain of Gondor, and defend your city while you may, and let me go where my doom takes me. Frodo here, in the grip of grief, believing that the fellowship has succumbed in its entirety, what remnant was left after his departure with Sam, believing that the fellowship has succumbed in its entirety to the blades of the orcs from the east. I love, too, the beat that we get right after this passage, where Faramir is like, okay, okay, calm down. Firstly, not all of your company faltered because someone laid Boromir out in that boat, right? He's willing to take that. He's not... He doesn't expect Frodo to trust his vision 100%, right? He's laying it in the context of this ethereal experience, this otherworldly experience, this fairy experience. And of course, that's connected with what he's saying at the beginning of this slide. If men have dealings with the mistress of magic who dwells in the golden wood, then they may look for strange things to follow. For it is perilous for mortal man to walk out of the world of this sun, and few of old came thence unchanged, tis said. Hey, Faramir, been reading your fairy tales, have you? Because he's absolutely right. That is what happens to mortals who tread into the realm of fairy. Very few return, and those who do, do not come back unchanged. And to the men of Gondor, Lothlorien is the land of fairy. This, this golden wood with the lady who does not die. This is, this is an otherworldly incursion for Faramir here. So he doesn't expect Frodo to take his story of seeing Boromir laid out in the boat as, as, as gospel. He doesn't expect Frodo to accept the story as being factually true, but he will use that story to offer comfort to Frodo, to say, no, look, think this through. This is what I saw. This is what I believe. I don't expect you to necessarily accept that it is true, but the consequence of this thing is true. The reality of this thing is true. Members of your fellowship survived because someone laid Boromir out in the boat. Someone honored his body in, in the days after his passing. And here, yes, we get the... Uh, we get the... Uh, the yes, um... Andrea says one of the gifts of Faramir is a gift of vision. Yes, absolutely. And corporeal, a reminder that vision is kingly slash noble, etc. Yeah, yeah. Turns out that Faramir actually embodies a lot of the kingly virtues. Stern and commanding, right? Absolutely. His men follow him without question. His men follow him without equivocation, as they should. This is a good and noble thing. He is also possessed of wit. He is also possessed of good humor. Faramir makes two jokes in this book. How many characters make jokes of any kind in this book? But Faramir makes two, which is pretty great. That, that puts him quite far ahead of everyone who isn't a hobbit or a wizard, actually. I, I'm not sure that any of the other characters can be said to make more jokes than that, at least in the, the novel version. Of course, in the movie versions, we're lucky enough to have Gimli the comedy dwarf, which 
is definitely a thing that happens in the movie adaptations of this book. Um, more on that when we get to the movie adaptations of this book, I suppose. So Frodo now laying out his, his fear, his anguish. Will you not put aside your doubt of me and let me go? I am weary and full of grief and afraid, but I have a deed to do or to attempt before I too am slain. Before I too am slain, right? Frodo's two hopes. Remember from our previous discussion? He has two hopes or, or there are two things about which Frodo might potentially be hopeful. In the first case, he has a slim hope. There is a chance that we might still succeed. There is a chance that we might pass by Minas Morgul and pass into Mordor and make it to Mount Doom and cast the ring into the fire. There's a chance. But I'm not going to survive it. I'm not going to come home from that before I too am slain. This is presented as an absolute certainty. And the more need of haste, he says, if we two halflings are all that remain of our fellowship. I'm not sure that I completely get that. There's certainly no less a need of haste, right? It doesn't actually changed the frame of, of Frodo's experience here if Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli have all fallen, if Merry and Pippin have fallen too beneath orc blades in the north. Go back, Faramir, valiant captain of Gondor, and defend your city while you may, and let me go where my doom takes me. You have your role, Faramir, and I have mine. And in this way, Faramir isn't the only one who is possessed of this not just a prophetic insight, but this wisdom, right? This is the greater wisdom. This is Frodo's understanding of his role, which has now been with him for some time, but also his understanding of Faramir's role. There is now, after all that he has faced, after crossing the Emin Mool, after crossing the Dead Marshes, after crossing the Plain of Dagorlad, after coming to the gates of Moranon and finding them completely impassable, after journeying south with Gollum by his side, Frodo is now surrounded by 300 men. 300 good and noble men of Gondor, and he seems to be completely convinced by Faramir, right? There's no suspicion between Frodo and Faramir at this point. Yes, Frodo is still holding close the, the, the secret of Isildur's bane. He's still holding that to his chest, but that is a burden that has been placed upon him. That is something about which he feels he has no choice, and ultimately, of course, something about which he will have no choice when that secret is finally revealed. He could turn to Faramir and say, look, the thing that I am doing... I urge you now, Faramir of Gondor, to take up the quest left by your brother's passing, to, to take up his pledge to aid me and my fellowship. Come with me now, 300 strong men of Gondor. We could assault Minas Tirith. In fact, Faramir, if you could just take your men over there and just make like a loud noise, that would be great. Just to go distract everyone. And my buddy and me, we're just going to slip through and it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. You don't have to question a thing. This is the task that was, was appointed for you. If I understand aright all that I have heard, Faramir of Gondor, this is the task that was meant for you. But he doesn't. Because Frodo understands what Faramir is for. What is a Faramir for? A Faramir is to protect a Gondor. That is why you have Faramir. That is his role in the proceedings. Yeah, good. And Doom here, Nikki says, Doom here sounds, uh, sounds like more than just the meaning of the archaic version. Well, let me go where my doom takes me. I mean, let me go where my judgment takes me, right? This is, this is my fate. He's, he's using doom in the sense of, um, in the sense of fate here. Mm. There is a kind of, uh, <laughs> the judgment that has been placed upon you has consequence and your doom will include that consequence, right? It is, it is not just a decision. It is not just the abstract decision. It is the judgment. It is the task or the, the reward or the, the punishment. It is the consequence that befalls you for that judgment. We, in the modern sense, use that to mean things that are, dark and things that are grim and things that are, you know, inevitable, right? Your doom is inevitable. And there is a sense in which kind of Frodo's occupying that space of transition between these two ideas. Doom does not necessarily mean that 
in the medieval sense, in the Tolkienian sense, but it does include that. And certainly that is the, the air where Frodo is. We're going to talk some more about hope in just a moment, of course. Um, Frodo even bestows dignity with the title Valiant Captain, says Shane. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely right. He's recognizing Faramir here, right? This isn't, uh, this isn't, let me, you men know nothing of my challenge. The last man that I hung out with, by the way, kind of screwed the pooch, kind of just ruined everything for everyone, just so you know. Boromir succumbed to the, the pull of a Sildur's Bane. I can't tell you what it is, but it's complicated. Yeah, he recognizes Faramir here, and that's crucially important. So at that point, we suspend our discussions between Faramir and Frodo, and we kind of, uh, we, we separate from our, our camp here, and we start traveling again, and we uh, pick up the ongoing discussion in more secretive terms. I broke off our speech together, said Faramir, not only because time pressed, as Master Samwise had reminded me, but also because we were drawing too near to matters that were better not debated openly before many men. It was for that reason that I turned rather to the matter of my brother and let, let be Isildur's bane. You were not wholly frank with me, Frodo. I told no lies, and of the truth all I could, said Frodo. I do not blame you, said Faramir. You spoke with skill in a hard place and wisely, it seemed to me, but I learned or guessed more from you than your words said. You were not friendly with Boromir, or you did not part in friendship. You and Master Samwise, too, I guess, have some grievance. Now, I loved him dearly, and would gladly avenge his death, yet I knew him well. Isildur's bane. I would hazard that Isildur's bane lay between you and was a cause of contention in your company. Clearly it is a mighty heirloom of some sort, and such things do not breed peace among confederates, not of what may be learned from ancient tales. Do I not hit near the mark? Near, said Frodo, but not in the gold. There was no contention in our company, though there was doubt, doubt which way we should take from the Ammon Mole. But be that as it may, ancient tales teach us also the peril of rash words concerning such things as heirlooms. Ah, then it is as I thought. Your trouble was with Boromir alone. He wished this thing brought to Minas Tirith, alas. It is a crooked fate that seals your lips who saw him last and holds from me that which I long to know. What was in his heart and thought in his latest hours, whether he erred or no, of this I am sure. He died well, achieving some good thing. His face was more beautiful even than in life. Again, Faramir not expecting Frodo to accept the literal truth of his dreamlike experience on the shores of the Anduin, but absolutely compelled by it himself. Whether or not Boromir literally passed him by on the, the gentle waters of the Anduin, in a sense, that is true of his death. He knows with certainty that Boromir died well, achieving some good thing. His face was more beautiful even than in life. That seems to be consistent. That seems to be completely true. It's really rather beautiful. Um, let me see here. As I, as I scroll back, there's a chat here. Uh, uh, Nikki is asking, as I'm trying to find... Oh. <laughs> Nikki is asking about the origin and etymology of the awful phrase, screwed the pooch, which I just inadvertently used in a live podcast and would like to never use again. Just like to never use again. Yes. Uh, uh, the, screwed up a situation. Made, made a terrible mistake. Made a terrible hash of things. Yes. Okay. So, Faramir here, possessed of wit and respectful of wit too, right? You spoke with skill in a hard place and wisely, it seemed to me. Okay, I get it. There's a secret here. There's something that you can't reveal. We ought not to reveal it in front of many men, even my men. This is something that should pass between us, and I'm not even necessarily going to push you for it. But I learned or guessed more from you than your word said. You were not friendly with Boromir, or you did not part in friendship. And that kind of echoes what Frodo said. I was his friend, for my part. 
I never took any action against Boromir. I never criticized Boromir, never never thought ill of Boromir, never did anything against Boromir. I was his friend for my part, right? Frodo was very careful there. And here too, do I not uh, do I not hit near the mark, says Faramir. Near, said Frodo, but not in the gold. Uh, archery metaphor there, the, the bullseye of the archery target would have been gold, right? Um, near, but not in the gold. There was no contention in our company, though there was doubt. Doubt which way we should take from the Ammon Mole. Be that as it may, ancient tales teach us also the peril of rash words concerning such things as heirlooms. Um, there was doubt. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, everything wasn't uh, wasn't perfect in the company, um, in the fellowship. We didn't know which way we were going to go from the Ammon Mole. Also, shouldn't talk rashly about, you know, things of significance, artifacts of significance, including family heirlooms, by the way, echoing back to the horn, echoing back to in the, the deep roots of Tolkien's legendarium to the Silmarils themselves. But Faramir is smarter than that. Ah, then it is as I thought. Your trouble was with Boromir alone. He wished the thing brought to Minas Tirith. Faramir recognizing exactly, understanding completely the heart of his brother. Alas, it is a crooked fate that seals your lips who saw him last and holds for me that which I long to know, what was in his heart and thought in his latest hours. Whether he erred or no, of this I am sure, he died well achieving some good thing. Whether he faltered, whether he succumbed, whether he gave in to temptation, whether he exhibited wrath and anger, whether he tried to take from you Isildur's bane, doesn't matter. I know that he died doing some good thing. He was peaceful and beautiful in death, more beautiful even in death than he had been in life, which kind of echoes what Aragorn had to say about Boromir, right? This this moment of Boromir's death isn't just a victory, it's a victory like few have won. It is absolutely the crowning achievement of Boromir's life is his death. That is the best thing that Boromir did in his long life. That is the best thing arguably that Boromir could have done in his long life. Giving his life in that sense is is a thing of great nobility and virtue. Yeah. Let me see. Um, okay, let's keep moving on. Gosh, I'm still, still many, uh, many slides to get through. And we must talk a little about the, uh, hey, look, it's a half a slide. Look at this. Just, uh, just a nice little half a slide while we pull some names for Gandalf. The Grey Pilgrim, said Frodo. Had he a name? Mithrandir, we called him in elf, in elf fashion, said Faramir. And he was content. Many are my names in many countries, he said. Mithrandir among the elves, Tharkun to the dwarves, Olorin I was in my youth in the west that is forgotten, in the south in Kanus, in the north Gandalf, to the east I go not. Gandalf, said Frodo. I thought it was he. Gandalf, the great dearest of counselors, leader of our company. He was lost in Moria. Mithrandir was lost, said Faramir. An evil fate seems to have pursued your fellowship. It is hard indeed to believe, of one, to believe that one of so great wisdom and of power for many wonderful things he did among us could perish and so much lore could be taken from the world. Are you sure of this? And that he did not just leave you and depart where he could? Alas, yes, said Frodo. I saw him fall into the abyss. Of course, we know the story of Gandalf a little better than uh, a little better than Frodo here, but nonetheless, he is telling Faramir the truth, and Faramir recognizing the awfulness of this. And look at how he attributes virtue to Gandalf of great wisdom and of great power and of great lore in that order. And I don't think that you know. I hesitate to spend too much time just drawing negative comparisons between Boromir and Faramir. Would Boromir have listed them in that order? Wisdom, power, lore. I feel as though Boromir would at the very least have inverted the first two. I feel as though Gandalf's power would have been the most important thing about him in the news of his falling. Yes. 
<laughs> Gandalf didn't have a real youth, says Corporeal, responding to Ryan. Uh, yeah, I didn't know Gandalf had a youth. Yes, Oleron in my youth. I love that. Um, yes, Gandalf did not have a youth, as we've discussed before. Gandalf was a Maya. He was uh, one of the immortal spirits who entered the world upon the moment of its creation. He is of a lesser order than the Valar, but he is... One of these, and I hesitate again because the, the, the connotation surrounding these words is just so pervasive and I want to avoid it. He was an immortal spirit. He was something like an angel, right? Like not a Christian angel, but, but something of that order when he entered the world. Uh, and we get some of these names, some of these names which are very good. At, of course, loving Tolkien as I do. I love all of the many names that he offers. Uh, Olorin is the original name in Valinor. Olorin is his Maya name. That is the name that he was before he was incarnated before he took on the body of Gandalf and came into Middle-earth in order to fight Sauron a thousand years ago with the other Istari, right? Oloren is Quenya, and it means uh, Olos or Olor, meaning dreams or visions. So it's it's kind of, uh, it, it's, it's he possessed of dreams of vision, he of dreams or visions is, is Gandalf's original name there. Mithrandir, we've talked about before, means grey pilgrim or grey wanderer in, in Sindarin. Inkanos, his name in the south, and we're not sure how far south he means here. South of Gondor, presumably, since in Gondor they called him Mithrandir, right? We're not sure how far south he goes, but probably not terribly, terribly far south. Um, Inkanos, uh, we don't know the, the exact literal meaning of Inkanos, but it does mean in Latin in real-world Latin, it does mean grey-haired, uh, though Christopher Tolkien noted when he was um, compiling the history of Middle-earth, looking at this passage, he noted that that was probably a coincidence. That was probably... Uh uh, probably just a, a linguistic coincidence between the actual constructed language that his father had created and real-world Latin. It is unlikely that Tolkien would have given Gandalf a Latin name. He has done that almost nowhere in, in, in The Lord of the Rings, in the Legendarium, yes. Um, Nikki is... Would Seer be a good translation for Olorin, asks Ryan. Um, that's actually not bad at all. Yes, um... Mm. Yes... In the sense, not in the like uh, more mystical sense of that, or at least seer in the sense that he is able to to experience dreams and visions, right? So, so yes, seer in the mystical sense, but more than seer in the mystical sense. Also, he is able to possess and to integrate and to act upon and to to to. Uh, move between those things yes and we'll have the opportunity to talk fleetingly about gandalf back in valinor when we talk about the silmarillion in due course my favorite of all the names by the way given to gandalf in this passage is tharkun of the dwarves tharkun is is in the dwarven language of course which we can tell by the little uh, the little diacritical mark above the u there and simply means uh staff man that seems to be the literal translation tharkun staff man which is pretty good it's, it's a pretty good name, yes. Rayla Lynn says, Gandalf's many names strikes me as very biblical. Yes, yes, exactly. And Joseph calling out here, one thing I'm constantly struck by in Lord of the Rings is how little everyone travels except Gandalf and Aragorn who go everywhere. Absolutely true. Gandalf and Aragorn are specific exceptions to the rule that no one really travels. I mean, we have to remember just, just how epic the journey from Minas Tirith to Rivendell is for Boromir, right? And Boromir is one of the, the, the greatest and most well-traveled men of Gondor, right? This is absolutely within the, the bounds of his experience, and yet it's still an epic undertaking. That is very true of the medieval world and can be difficult for those of us who are kind of coming back to the Lord of the Rings after a grounding in, in medieval, uh, in, in modern fantasy, rather, where epic journeys are 
absolutely par for the course. You know, if you've read uh, the David and Lee Eddings series, The Belgariad, that entire 10-book series is basically our party of adventurers crisscrossing the world. And I mean crisscrossing the entire world. I mean continents. They spend all their time journeying, and it never seems particularly exceptional in that world. Yeah. Tolkien paying more close attention to the, the conventions of medieval storytelling and medieval life than many of those who followed after him. Yes. Wizard dad of many names and colors, says Ray Lillen. I love just all of these names. It's so, so good. Many other names. And I love, too, that Faramir quotes Gandalf, right? He doesn't just, the offsetting in italics here is his direct quote of Gandalf. Many are my names in many countries, he said. Mithrandir among the elves, Tharkun to the dwarves, Olorin I was in my youth in the west that is forgotten. In the south, in Connus, in the north, Gandalf. To the east I go not. Which brings to mind, of course, too, the impromptu eulogy written by Aragorn and Legolas back at Parthgallon when they're laying Boromir out in the boat, when they're talking about the wind coming to Minas Tirith, and the east wind does not come to the to, to Minas Tirith, right? The east is still still dark, is still troubled here, particularly for the men of Gondor. It does remind me a little bit of, um, I don't know if you guys have spent any time listening to the uh, improvised comedy podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. Uh, which is a very it's it's a very silly and absurd podcast uh which riffs along a lot of like classic uh fantasy and and d and d inflected themes and motifs it's it's plays fast and loose with the rules of fantasy, but there is a character in the regular cast of that show called Usador the Wizard, who when he introduces himself introduces himself with this very Gandalfian like list of names uh which I now unfortunately can't recall at all but it's uh it's 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 very good it's very good is the thing about hello from the magic tavern okay let's get to um actually let's get to the thing shall we let's get to the whole point of tonight's session here we are uh, an hour and 10 minutes into our our live discussion let's get to the slide that i have been looking forward to since we started the lord of the rings this is one of my favorite passages in the entire book it is gosh you know what perilously close if i were inspired to get a, a tattoo upon my actual body of a passage from the lord of the rings it would be contained in this reading Let's get right to it, shall we? Now Faramir's voice sank to a whisper. But this much I learned, or gasped, and I have kept it ever secret in my heart since, that Isildur took somewhat from the hand of the unnamed ere he went away from Gondor, never to be seen among mortal men again. Here, I thought, was the answer to Mithrandir's questioning, but it seemed that a matter that concerned only the seekers after ancient learning. Nor when the riddling words of our dream were debated among us did I think of Isildur's bane as being this same thing, for Isildur was ambushed and slain by orc arrows, according to the only legend that we knew— and Mithrandir had never told me more. What in truth this thing is, I cannot yet guess. But some heirloom of power and peril it must be, a fell weapon, perchance, devised by the Dark Lord. If it were a thing that gave advantage in battle, I can well believe that Boromir, the proud and fearless, often rash, ever anxious for the victory of Minas Tirith and his own glory therein, might desire such a thing and be allured by it. Alas, that he ever went on that errand. I should have been chosen by my father and the elders, but he put himself forward as being the older and the hardier, both true, and he would not be stayed. But fear no more. I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway. Not were Minas Tirith falling and ruin, and I alone could save her, so using the weapon of the Dark Lord for her good and my glory. No, I do not wish for such triumphs, Frodo, son of Drogo. Nor did the council, said Frodo. Nor do I. I would have nothing to do with such matters. For myself, said Faramir, 
I would see the white tree and flower again in the courts of the kings and the silver crown return and ministereth in peace. Minneth, Minnes Arnor again as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be what we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have loved for her memory, excuse me, and I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise. So fear me not. I do not ask you to tell me more. I do not even ask you to tell me whether I now speak nearer the mark, but if you will trust me, it may be that I can advise you in your present quest, whatever that may be. Yes, and even aid you. Kind of just want to pull from the Crowdcast chat here. Uh, yes, Joseph calling out, uh, not even the kind mistress of willing slaves, echoes of Lothlorien. Yes, echoes of Galadriel right here. Not just rejecting his brother's perspective on the ring here, but rejecting dark Galadriel's too, right? Galadriel passes that test crucially, which Boromir too kind of passes, though he comes closer to the mark. Nikki says in the Crowdcast chat, this, this is why Faramir is a great man, capital G, capital M. The ends do not justify the means. He recognizes the folly of taking the ring at Durin's Bane, son of Bard, calling out in all caps, I do not love the sword for its sharpness. That's it, right? That's the quote that I would have. Like, like I would get that arrayed typographically with, with beautiful precision and flourish upon my skin. If I took anything from the Lord of the Rings, it would be exactly that, any, any single line of text. And this is, as so many of you are calling, <laughs> Ryan says, Machiavelli would not love Faramir. No, absolutely right. Um, <laughs> this is absolutely perfect. And let's look at the progression, right? Because it's very easy to jump ahead to that because it is just so perfect. But let's look at what Faramir is going through here. He knows about Isildur's Bane. He knows that there is something called Isildur's Bane. He doesn't know what it is, but he's beginning to suspect that it was a weapon. He knows it's not what killed Isildur. Isildur was killed by orc arrows as he was floating in the Anduin trying to get away, right? But, <clears throat> excuse me, as the ring slips from his finger and betrays him ultimately, right? Isildur is killed by orc arrows. So those are not the bane of Isildur. But he has already figured this out. This much I learned or guessed, and I have kept it ever secret in my heart since, that Isildur took somewhat from the hand of the unnamed, the first instance, or one of the first instances of that particular fantasy trope, by the way, I will not speak the name of our enemy, of the unnamed, ere he went away from Gondor, never to be seen among mortal men again. He's already understanding, well, wait, Isildur led this great victory on the plains of Dagorlad, this, this great victory, the Battle of the Last Alliance, and he won, and then he departed from Gondor. Why? What was acting upon Isildur at that time? Here, I thought, was the answer to Mithrandir's questioning, but it seemed then a matter that concerned only the seekers after ancient learning. Nor when the riddling words of our dream were debated among us did I think of Isildur's bane as being this same thing, right? So he's, he's like figuring out there is something happening with Isildur, but even when we have this prophetic dream, Isildur's bane is being called into question here. Well, the orc arrows, but that can't be what's actually important about the story of Isildur. That can't be what is significant, right? The bane can't be the important thing. Or if the bane is the important thing, then it isn't something so, so simple. It isn't something so trite as the thing that killed him. What in truth the thing is, I cannot yet guess. But some heirloom of power and peril, it must be a fell weapon. Now look at where his mind goes. He took something from the hand of the unnamed. What could it be but a weapon? It has to be, here he's kind of 
reaching the obvious logical conclusion, right? And of course, he's not wrong in the sense that it certainly could be put to terrible purpose, but he's thinking of it, how can I put this? Boromir understands what the ring is and then sees its application as a weapon. Faramir understands that it must be a weapon, but doesn't know its nature, right? Faramir is kind of comprehending first the purpose to which it would be put and is resisting the lure of the ring in its fullest power long before he has any kind of reason to rationalize that power. That's going to come in just a moment, but we're not there yet. If, uh, if it were a thing that gave advantage in battle, I can well believe that Boromir, the proud and fearless, often rash, ever anxious for the victory of Minas Tirith, parenthetically, and his own glory therein. Faramir knows his brother, right? He wants the victory of Minas Tirith, but he wants the victory that comes with, you know, people chanting his name and waving flags and, you know, face paint and naming their kids Boromir after the great Boromir, all of these, you know, victory traditions. He might desire such a thing and be allured by it. Alas, he ever went on that errand. I should have been chosen by my father and the elders, but he put himself forward as being the older and the hardier. Both true. Faramir absolutely accepting. No, he said, I am older than Faramir. Correct. I am hardier than Faramir. Correct. Like they made the right choice given the, the circumstances that were presented to them and he would not be stayed. But here, fear no more. I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway. Not were Minas Tirith falling in ruin and I alone could save her. So using the weapon of the Dark Lord for her good and my glory. No, I do not wish for, su for such triumphs, Frodo, son of Drogo. It doesn't matter what this thing is. It doesn't matter the stakes. It doesn't matter what is happening to Minas Tirith. It doesn't matter what tragedy, what, what devastation is befalling Minas Tirith, or to what glory I could restore her. It doesn't matter if I would be hailed as the returning king. It doesn't matter if we could forever, in the line of Denethor, set aside our stewardship and actually take the throne, which, by the way, Boromir was super into and kind of frustrated that we hadn't been able to do so already, just, you know, so you know. Even if that were the case, even if this, if the stakes were as high as they could possibly be, I wouldn't pick that thing up if I found it. I certainly wouldn't claim it from someone who had already had it in their possession. I wouldn't take the ring from you, Frodo, or from anyone. If it were presented to me as an accident, you know, if it were lying by the highway, I would not pick it up. I do not wish for such triumphs. Neither did the council, said Frodo. You're right. <laughs> Elrond, Gandalf, all of us, besides Boromir, we're all with you by the way. Correct. This is, this is wise. Nor do I. I would have nothing to do with such matters. For myself, said Faramir, I would see the white tree and flower again in the courts of the kings and the silver crown return. The silver crown there being, you know, the crown of the king. He's talking about the return of Aragorn. And he's talking about the, the return of the, the line of Isildur, of Elendil. And Minas Tirith in peace. I would see my home restored. King, check. White tree, check. Peace, check. I would see Minas Arnor again as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. And we'll note there, you know, this, this perspective on, on Tolkienian social hierarchy again, right? Another perspective, another reminder of, of how societies work in the medieval period, how societies work in, in this concept, this, this secondary creation of Tolkien here. Queens are to be respected and revered. Queens are of a higher order. That the beauty of Minas Arnor should be the beauty of a queen among other queens. It should elevate everyone. It should be elevated by and elevate everyone. It should not be a mistress of many slaves. Nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. That is a line that I will not cross, not with all the justification in the world. And Joseph was absolutely right, of course, pulling that back to the discussion of Galadriel, right? War must be. 
This is the truth that Faramir is contending with. This is what I want. What I want is peace and happiness and the king back and for everything to be good. I want all of these things. I am not engaged in the same kind of battle for glory as my brother Boromir was. I do not care about victory. I want peace. I want what comes after the victory. I don't even necessarily want to... Mm, it's not that he doesn't want to win, but the winning would have no virtue for Faramir, right? What comes after would have virtue. That's what he wants. He's looking past the war. I don't want to crush my enemies. I don't want to, to slay the last filthy orc that ever dares to cross the Anduin and, and invade, you know, the or, or come down from the mountains and invade the realm of Athelion. I don't want that. That's not what he's talking about. I don't want to, to slay every one of those Nazgul that has in, infested Minas Morgul, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about what comes after because war must be while we defend our lives against the destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. And we've got to kind of parse this a little bit, or I would encourage you to parse this a little bit. I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, but I do love the bright sword. And I do not love the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love these things. I love only that which they defend. I love the... The emergence of these things as a representation, as, as, as artifacts of a good and loving and positive culture. This is what he's talking about. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, wisdom excuse me, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise. I don't want anyone to fear Osgiliath, to fear the, the restored Gondor. Between the, t the Twin Towers, we will rebuild Osgiliath and no one will fear it. No one will fear her, except to the degree that someone may be awestruck and reverent in the light of someone old and wise. So fear me not. I do not ask you to tell me more. I do not even ask you to tell me whether I now speak near the mark. Like, it doesn't matter. Now, I have spoken sufficiently close to the mark. You have told me enough to know that, uh, to know that I don't need to take this any further. Like, it's, it's fine. I will pledge myself to your aid. And I will pledge myself to your aid, by the way. But if you will trust me, it may be that I can advise you in your present quest, whatever that may be, yes, and even aid you. This is in conflict with his orders. This is in, in conflict from his direct instruction from his king to slay everyone that he finds in Athelion. It's so utterly, utterly beautiful and powerful and, and lovely. Yes, Nikki says he wants victory for the sake of peace, not for the sake of glory. Yes, good, good. Um, Andrea says he's able to keep the greater picture in mind. This is humility. He sees where his role fits in. His role is important, but it is a piece of a greater vision. Andrea, that is beautifully put. You are absolutely right. That is exactly what unites Faramir and Sam here, right? It is a perfect understanding of their place. They want the world to be good. They understand, A, that the ends do not justify the means, that there are lines which we ought not to cross. We ought to be mindful of what we become in the, the you know, the, the fighting of monsters, I suppose, to kind of paraphrase Nietzsche there. But this is, this is absolutely his connection with Sam, is an understanding of that social order. It is a willingness to serve, which also is reflected in the, the great kings and queens. Yeah, good. Good. I, yeah. Uh, Shane says, I think Faramir would be driven mad in corruption, unable to achieve his ends of peace. Yeah, we're talking about corrupted Faramir here in the Crowdcast chat. Uh, unable to achieve his ends of peace with one more enemy and just more frustrated and depressed like his father becomes. Wow. Um, gosh. Um, what would Faramir become? That's a really difficult question because 
the first and most obvious and, and in many ways most powerful answer to what would corrupted Faramir become, what would Faramir become under the influence of the ring? The first and most obvious answer is not Faramir, right? It's the first and most obvious answer might be Boromir back at Amon Han, right? This, if he falls into delusions of power and the desire for grandeur and glory, if he starts to love the sword for its sharpness and the arrow for its swiftness, then he kind of becomes his brother. I mean, that is what distinguishes the two of them, right? That that is what what as he lays out as he lays out here. Um, Boromir, the proud and fearless, often rash, ever anxious for the victory of Minas Tirith and his own glory therein. That's what separates them: this impetuous and prideful nature. So, if the Ring were going to get purchased with Faramir, I think that's how it would do it. But Faramir is the rarest of all things in the works of Professor Tolkien. He is a character who is untouched by temptation. He is a character so completely integrated in his society, so completely sure of his role, so completely dedicated to his role, that he does not yearn for anything other than that. He does not strive to elevate himself in any way. In exactly that spirit, he and Sam are, are nigh identical. For all that they are different in pretty much every other way, in that sense, they are very, very similar indeed, even more similar than, you know, the Faramir and Aramir, for example, a, a more obvious point of comparison there. Gosh, it is, it is, uh, it is, yeah, running late here. Um, let me see. Durin's Bane, son of Bard, why would Tolkien create a character so immune to the ring slash power that corrupts so unman-like? We all love Faramir for this, but doesn't it diminish some of those consistent themes? Um, interesting. Um... What does Faramir tell us about the book as a whole? No, I don't think so. I, I'm not sure that I agree with that because for all that it is for all that it is tempting to talk about the fall of men, right? For all that it is tempting to talk about, you know, the fourth age of the world, the age after this whole little ring drama is resolved, the fourth age will be the age of man and it will be a period, a long, slow decline into mundanity, into the modern world, and men will be less than they were before. But that is not the corruption of the enemy. That is not the corruption of the ring or of Sauron or of darkness or the desire for power, that is a healthier and more wholesome kind of diminishment, right? Men diminish because they are supposed to. Men diminish in goodness and in grace through the fourth age. They are not corrupted. Modern men can be corrupted, right? And men throughout the ages can be corrupted because, of course, as is obvious to those of us living in the modern world, evil is not vanquished. And that's not me being, you know, somewhat snide about, about uh, Professor Tolkien's storytelling craft here. Evil is never vanquished. This is the recurring theme here. Morgoth was, was vanquished, except not really. Sauron was vanquished, except not really. Sauron is about to be vanquished again, minor spoilers for the end of the book, except not really. This is the passage of all of history. You know, Melkor's had two or three runs at it. And it doesn't matter because there's always temptation. There's always pride. There's always the desire to to functionally objectify others, right? And Faramir was calling that out very specifically here. Why is Boromir bad? Well, because he wants the victory of Minas Tirith, but he wants his own glory too, which 
relegates everyone else in that story to a to supporting cast, effectively, right? He is turning the story of Minas Tirith into the story of Boromir, plus 5,000 other guys who also fought that day. He is objectifying the human beings around him in a way that Faramir does not. This takes us back to the, you know, mistress of many slaves, even a kind mistress of willing slaves. You are still objectifying the person. You are dehumanizing the person that you're addressing there, the person over which you have ownership and dominion now. That is always evil. That is always evil in the Lord of the Rings. That is the the dark corruption of, of fealty and of loyalty and of service, I suppose. So what Faramir represents is the best instinct of a fully integrated man within a fully integrated social order. He is heroic in that sense, not in the sense that he is excessive, right? If you've been with me through my discussions of Harry Potter over on Dear Mr. Porter, you'll have heard me talk a lot about the excessive qualities of heroes in, in J.K. Rowling's stories. That is to say that, that Harry is a classical hero a lot of the time, not all of the time, certainly, but, but a lot of the time Harry is a classical hero, which simply means that the rules do not apply to him. He can do whatever he wants, whatever justification he wants. Things are good because Harry does them. Things are, are right because Harry believes them. That is just like the structure of the early books of that series. At least we, we do question that a little bit as we move on. And the same could be said of Boromir, right? Boromir is an excessive hero. He is a classical hero. He is more like, like Theseus or, or Heracles than he is like Faramir or Aramir for that matter. He's He's... He exists outside of the bounds of his society. Faramir does not. Faramir exists completely within the bounds of his society, just like Sam. So I think that the inclusion of Faramir is a beat of hope, right? It tells us that actually, I mean, it's also a beat of eucatastrophe. This is buried pretty deep in there, and it can be difficult to kind of tease out, but the idea that Boromir went and Faramir stayed so that Faramir could be here now to help Frodo, that is significant. That does matter, right? But also, it is a gesture toward the goodness of man. And of course, Faramir is not the only man. Faramir is not the only one who resists. And even as I say this, I'm well aware as I've used the word man a thousand times in the last hour and a half that, that this comes off as very, very gendered. I'm using the, the Tolkienian construction here. Yeah, there are men and women. Eowyn is a perfect example of a, a, of a human, of a man, as it were, who is just as virtuous, just as wonderful as, as Faramir. Well, if anyone can be just as wonderful as Faramir. But we've got Faramir, and we've got Eomer, and we've got Eowyn, and we've got Aragorn. Aragorn, son of Arathorn, not so tempted by the ring, it turns out. Tempted by other things, like weighed on by other matters. But there is still goodness in the hearts of men. There is still virtue in the hearts of men. And that is essential, I think, for for us to care about their triumph, for us to care that Gondor will go on, that that this story can, you know, that we as readers still have hope. We are not despairing. Speaking of hope, let's keep pushing on here. Um, let me see here. Yes, good, good. All right, I'm just uh, just uh, catching up with the chat. Uh, Erica is asking, can we start a new forum discussion on podcasts to listen to, say what our favorite podcasts are, and give a pitch? There is actually a board over there on the forum for uh, recommendations. So yes, head on over to pointnorthmedia.com slash forum and suggest your favorite podcasts. Yes. Andrea says, I think it's important that Faramir is humble and considered in his wisdom. He has a servant mentality, although a leader, that seems to create levels of resistance, resistance to the, the corruptive influence of the ring and the shadow. Absolutely right. And as we've said earlier, right, that is, that is feudalistic structure. The, the the serf serves the landowner who serves the local authority, who serves the local count, who serves the local duke, who serves the king. And the king, in return, serves all of those people, has, has 
dominion over them, but a good king is a servant of his people. Is A good leader is a servant of his people. That is absolutely vital to the, the working feudalistic system. Yeah. Good. Okay. Let's keep pushing on. Uh, we're probably not going to get through all of our slides tonight, but we do absolutely have to get to the window on the sunset. This, in fact... Um, yeah, let's make this our last slide tonight. Let's let's wrap up halfway through the chapter. That's that's pretty good. But we will get to Henneth Anun, the window on the west. At least by good chance, we come at the right hour to reward you for your patience, said Faramir. This is the window of the sunset, Henneth Anun, fairest of all the falls of Athelian land of many fountains. Few strangers have ever seen it, but there is no kingly hall behind to match it. Enter now and see. Even as he spoke, the sun sank and the fire faded in the flowing water. They turned and passed under the low, forbidding arch. At once they found themselves in a rock chamber, wide and rough, with an uneven, stooping roof. A few torches were kindled and cast a dim light on the glistening walls. Many men were already there. Others were still coming in by twos and threes through a dark, narrow door on one side. As their eyes grew accustomed to the gloom, the hobbits saw the cave was larger than they had guessed and was filled with a great store of arms and, vi and vittles. Well, here is our refuge, said Faramir. Not a place of great ease, but here you may pass the night in peace. It is dry, at least, and there is food, though no fire. At one time the water flowed down through this cave and out through the arch, but of course, but its course was changed further up the gorge by workmen of old, and the stream sent down in a fall of doubled height over the rocks far above. All the ways into this grot were then sealed against the enemy of water or aught else, sa oh, excuse me, ex against the entry of water or aught else, all save one. There are now but two ways out, the passage yonder by which you entered blindfolded, and through the window curtain into a deep bowl filled with knives of stone. Now rest a while until the evening meal is set. Yeah, Seastar was saying, I love the waterfalls description that came right before this. I have made a mistake pulling the slide here. I wanted to pull the, uh, the reference to the waterfall right before this too, because it is beautiful, right? We get this shimmering curtain of waterfall. This is the window to the west. Henneth Anun is the window of the sunset, but also the window of the west. Those words mean the same thing. They are kind of, of the sunset is metaphorically representative of the west, as the west is metaphorically representative of the sunset, are both, as both are metaphorically representative of the decline of Middle Earth, right? This is, this is. We are inside a ruin, and we are looking out to the west, and we are looking out at the sunset. We're looking out at the end of the day. The sun is falling, and the the light is passing from the world, and all of our metaphors now come into beautiful stark alignment. This is not what once it was. This is now a shattered remnant of what once it was. This is this is you know Ithilien. This is the Garden of Gondor that has fallen under the shadow. This is this is the ruin now of what once stood as as a testament to goodness and to virtue. Gondor itself, of course, standing similarly as a remnant of what once really stood as a testament to goodness and virtue. Numenor itself, far in the west, that fell to to hubris and to to greed and the desire for immortality. So here we are looking out through the window to the west as the water comes down and we get that beautiful description of the light being reflected through the waterfall and seeming so so vibrant and, and ethereal and so otherworldly. And what strikes me most powerfully about that is, of course, that without the west, without the light that was, we wouldn't have this beauty. There is still beauty in the world. There is still goodness in the world. And those things can be echoes, can be lingering remnants of what was great in the past. But those things exist now because of things that existed then. Because as we look to the West, in fact, you know what, let's, let's take... Um, 
let's take one more slide because I didn't pull the uh, because I didn't pull the uh, the the slide there the the description of the waterfall there. I urge you all, of course, to go and look that up, and maybe I'll post that back. Uh, Back on the uh, on the uh, forum, there. Yes, <laughs> Nikki's asking why are secret spaces behind waterfalls so magical? Uh, and corporeal is answering liminality, barriers, thresholds, doorways, rainbows, all of the above. Also, um, tradition. Also, just the idea that that these secret spaces. I mean, there's a kind of elemental opposition, which is really powerful and really beautiful there too. But there's also just, you know, because of all of these things that Corporeal has listed here in the Crowdcast chat and many other things besides being kind of uh, embodied in specific myth, in specific story, they now feel that much more wondrous and wonderful. But yes, yes, absolutely. Good. Um, so now we're going to observe one of the very few and most explicit kind of Beats of religious observance or pseudo-religious observance that we get in the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings famously has no churches, has no chapels, has no prayers even really, not in what we would consider to be a kind of Christian sense of prayer. There's there's really nothing like that in the books. There's no kind of observation of... Uh, the, the mechanics and the interactions of faith or the mechanics and the interactions associated with faith. This is one of the very few examples that we get. Now more torches were being lit. A cask of wine was broached. Storage, storage barrels were being opened. Men were fetching water from the falls. Some were laving their hands in basins. A wide copper bowl and a white cloth were brought to Faramir and he washed. Wake our guests, he said, and take them to water. It is time to eat. Frodo sat up and yawned and stretched. Sam, not used to being waited on, looked with some surprise at the tall man who bowed, holding a basin of water before him. Put it on the ground, master, if you please, he said. Easier for me and you. Then, to the astonishment and amusement of the man, he plunged his head into the cold water and splashed his neck and ears. Is it the custom in your land to wash the head before supper, said the man who waited on the hobbits. No, before breakfast, said Sam. But if you're short, if you're short of sleep, cold water on the necks like rain on a wilted lettuce. There, now I can keep awake long enough to eat a bit. They were led then to seats beside Faramir, barrels covered with pelts and high enough above the benches of men for their, their convenience. Before they ate, Faramir and all his men turned and faced west in a moment of silence. Faramir signed to Frodo and Sam they should do likewise. So we always do, he said as they sat down. We look toward Numenor that was, and beyond to Elvenholm that is, and to that which is beyond Elvenholm and will ever be. Have you no such custom at meat? No, said Frodo, feeling strangely rustic and untutored. But if we are guests, we bow to our host, and after we have eaten, we rise and thank him. That we do also, said Faramir. The opposition there of the tradition of the world and the tradition of that which lays beyond the world, right? We are engaged in the here and now, in community and in culture and in society. That is the tradition of of, of thanking the host, however we, we go about that, right? Which Faramir also does. But unlike the hobbits, the men of Gondor, the heirs of Numenor, still look west. They look west to Numenor that was, to Elvenholm that is, and that which is beyond which will ever be, their true home, that which lies beyond even the, the undying lands of, of Arda, right? Or which were formerly apart physically, geographically of Arda and are now no longer. So now we're, we're looking out into the west, and I love this moment of observance. I love this moment of... <sighs> this moment of faith, honestly, right? This is what we are doing. And, and Faramir is listing this rather beautifully. We look toward Numenor that was. We're looking toward our own past, our own heritage. We are recognizing that we are men of Gondor, yes, but we were men of Numenor. That is why we are here. That is why we have made our homes here. So we are looking from where we are 
to where we were. And we're looking back still further to Elvenholm. We're looking at the, the, the very beginning of, the very beginning is complicated too, but we're looking at the heart of the, the fairy realm here. We're looking at the heart of magic. We're looking at the heart of creation. And beyond that, we're looking at that which is infinite and permanent, that which is unchanging beyond even the elves. We are always looking west, and not in the way that the elves are looking west, because we look further than Elvenholm. We look further than Valinor, and the elves don't. There is still that recognition there that, that, I mean, the elves can't. It would be fruitless for the elves to look further than Valinor. They are, as we've discussed before, of the world in a way that the men are not. Faramir has that understanding, and the awareness of that, the looking toward that, I find... I find surprisingly moving and surprisingly beautiful. Yes, good. Good, all right. Let's wrap it up there, you guys. As you can tell, I think my voice is, uh, is faltering just a little bit. Yes, good. I'm just catching up with the chat here. Joseph uh, recommending... Um, Joseph recommending trips to New Zealand some fine day. I would love to make the trip to New Zealand and, and do the Lord of the Rings tour, I guess, basically. Just just gorgeous. Yes. Varig of Khand is calling out the songs to Elbereth and analog to Ave Maria, perhaps. Um, yeah, that's the closest thing, right? The kind of Elbereth Gilthoniel is like the closest thing that we get to what we would consider to be not even a prayer, right? The prayer adjacent uh, in, in kind of uh, modern Christian theology. That That's about as close as we get specifically. And even then, of course... Hmm. What do I mean? I mean that that is a meaning that we might take from Elbereth Gilthonia, right? To, to human beings, that seems to be like an apt point of comparison. But I think that if you suggested that point of comparison to an elf, they wouldn't see the applicability there. They wouldn't see the analogy there because it's a very different, it's a very different thing. We are not in our prayers looking to history as we understand it. We are not looking to, to tales as we understand it. I think in, in that tradition, we're generally looking as the men of, of Gondor here, as Faramir's men are, looking, to, looking beyond. We are where we are. We're looking at where we came from. We're looking at what lays beyond that. And then we're looking at what is infinite and permanent beyond that still. And that, I think, is the... That's why I say that this is probably the closest thing that we get to, to like a religious observance, a, a real religious observance here. Even death is... Presented in the Anglo-Saxon sense, right, where it is it is a gesture of honor, and it is about the the culture and communities, about strengthening the bonds of culture and communities, about the 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 performative aspect. That is not to suggest any insincerity, right? The sincere performative aspect of honor and of virtue in that context, but it's not outright religious, right? It's it's more complicated than that, and I find that relentlessly fascinating. Relentlessly fascinating, obviously. Guys, that is going to do it. Let's look ahead to our next uh, our next reading next week. Uh, chapter six and seven, I'm promising someone. Actually, The Forbidden Pool is a very short chapter, so we may actually make it through the rest of chapter five and chapter six and seven next week. That is going to be at 3 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, February the 1st. Can you believe it? It is almost the beginning of February already. 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, Thursday, February the 1st. For the 50th episode of There and Back Again, it is going to be a great discussion as we conclude our thoughts here. We're going to talk about, just in the rest of this chapter, we're going to talk about hope and we're going to talk about elf sir we're going to have sam standing up to faramir then we're going to have that beautiful moment where sam and faramir take their leave of each other yeah maybe we're not going to make it all the way through chapter six and seven next week but we'll see what we can do to make that work thank you all so much for joining me let me take a quick look at the question poll here let me see if i can uh 
if I can uh, push through some of this stuff. Faramir's explanation of the standing silence is one of the rare examples of piety we see in Lord of the Rings. This is a question from Variag of Khan. Are there others? Maybe the songs to Elberth. By the way, Faramir's explanations echo the Gloria Patri in Revelations 4.8. I'm not familiar with that. I will definitely go and look that up. That's rather beautiful. Uh, yes, as I say, um, Elberth Gilthoniel, I think, is about the closest, about the closest that we're going to get. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I can't think of anything else that is not at least like we can argue for some of the um for some possible kind of uh religious applicability in some of the customs of of middle earth but nothing that is primarily religious in in its in its purpose and, and meaning i would argue but yes I, I think that's really interesting i will give that some more thought maybe we'll take that discussion over to the uh over to the uh over to the the forum there uh more of a question than a comment from erica here but erica says hi everyone guess what 10 days ago i started reading the hobbit and listening to the podcast listen to every episode and i'm now caught up in 10 days erica 48 episodes to get you this far in 10 days that is that is a lot of me are you okay are you all right are you hearing my voice now when you fall asleep at night? Because I can't take, legally, I can't take any responsibility for that. I hope that you have enjoyed your journey with us. That, gosh, has to be the shortest period of time in which anyone has listened to, where are we? Let's call it 50 episodes. Let's say that on average, I run a little over an hour and a half. So probably something like 80 to 85 hours of content. Wow. That's that's devotion. That's dedication. We're very glad to have you with us, Erica. Good job. Joseph says, we've seen that Faramir has reached his limit on what he would do in service of Gondor. A really interesting piece of interpretation there, Joseph, right? He has followed his instructions up to the moment that he meets Frodo and Sam and doesn't kill them outright. Yes. For me, this raises the question, Joseph continues, um, of where would Sam draw the line in serving Frodo if he was ordered to kill some of Faramir's men right now to escape? Would he do it? Would he kill Gollum in cold blood? I think we've seen some of Sam's, um, we've, we've seen Sam at least approach the line, right? His relationship with Gollum is a relationship right now that is, or was at first at least, mandated by Frodo. He had to protect Gollum and, and, and allow Gollum to accompany him. And he's willing to kind of, to follow Frodo's instruction there, but he's flexible enough about that instruction that he's still suspicious, that he's still, he's waiting for Gollum to step out of line, right? He's, he's waiting for Gollum to, he himself does not have pity in his heart for Gollum. He himself does not have forgiveness in his heart for Gollum. He does not have that, that, that recognition that Frodo shares with Gollum, this mutual, uh, you and I, we are alike, you know, the sun in the high place, the sun in the low place, etc. from, uh, from the riddles in the dark chapter. Um, Sam doesn't quite have that, so he's willing to follow the letter of the law as far as Frodo is concerned, but not the substance of the law. That may change in the very near future. In fact, we'll see how that works out. But there is a difference, too, that Faramir is a holder, I think, of military rank. Faramir is responsible to the men under his command in a way that, that Sam is not. What I was talking about earlier, right, with the, the, the feudalistic hierarchy here... Faramir is like in the middle of that. He owes fealty to his king, but he also has the fealty of his man. He is the servant to his men in much the same way as every lord is the servant to, to those he leads, right? Sam is at the bottom of the totem pole. Sam doesn't actually have the fealty of anyone, as we saw rather charmingly in that last slide about the, the placing of the bowl down in front of him. Uh, no, I'm super uncomfortable, hey, man of Gondor, with you serving me in any way, so maybe just put it down and we'll be cool. That'd, that'd be fine. Sam doesn't have anyone who owes him fealty. So he therefore doesn't have to extend care. He doesn't have to extend leadership in that sense. So he doesn't, he isn't quite under the same moral obligation as Faramir. I mean, it's of a similar order, I think, but it's not quite the same. That's maybe where I would draw that distinction. But yes, we can speculate about the limits of Sam's uh, 
Sam's love of Frodo. And that's really, I mean, we, we talk about in the modern world, we like to recast this as, as loyalty, as fealty, as, you know, obligation, as duty, as, as these kind of more rational 20th century words. But in the medieval tradition, we're talking about love, right? You owe fealty to your king because you love him. You owe fealty to your queen because you love her, to your God, to your Lord. Like, these are bonds of love, love not in the sexual 20th century sense, but in the purer chivalric, or purer, in, in the different chivalric kind of uh, lowercase r romantic sense of, of the medieval period, yes. Um, let me see, Andrea asks, does the trait of taking wise considered action as Faramir does reduce the influence of the ring? Um, I guess not necessarily, right? Um, true wisdom, yes. True wisdom is going to be somewhat of an antidote to the corruption of the ring because true wisdom requires an objectivity and a humility in order to understand not just the landscape but your place within the landscape that is that is necessary for wisdom boromir when he seeks victory at ministerith uh when he seeks his own glory is not acting wisely right wisdom and and pride are in conflict with one another are ultimately somewhat antithetical to one another um so yes, but the desire to to wait and take action only after a period of time, I could see that potentially playing into the ring's desire to corrupt, right? What does Galadriel want the ring for? Well, Galadriel wants the ring to preserve the world. She wants there to be stasis. She wants Lothlorien to, to be as it is, static and unchanging forever. And that would be, as she recognizes, the action of a, of a dark queen. All would love me and despair, as it were. But it would be about prolonging the present, not about the violent overthrow of, of a tyrant, the way that Boromir looks at the ring and the way that other men might look at the ring too. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap this up. You guys, we have got to, to do this thing and say goodnight because it has been a long, long evening here. Thank you all so much for joining me. It is, for those of you listening to the podcast, a little after the fact, currently Sunday evening. This was a rescheduled episode of There and Back Again. So we are on the brink already of a brand new week of podcasts from Point North Media. If you are uh, signed up for the Between Worlds Fairy and Folklore class, then I will see you tomorrow night for our fourth discussion, in which we're talking about Charles Perrault, and we're talking about the Brothers Grimm, and we're talking about Hans Christian Andersen, we're talking about the codification of modern fairy tales. That is going to be a really fascinating discussion. On Tuesday night, we're going to have Dear Mr. Potter looking at the next reading from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. On Wednesday night, I'm giving a special one-shot discussion on Studio Ghibli's fantastic and beautiful and moving and lyrical movie, My Neighbor Totoro, so you'll find the links to that over on Point North Media 2. That will be a live discussion that'll go out in the one-shot feed on Thursday night or Thursday afternoon, I guess. We're doing There and Back Again. Again, on Friday, we'll continue our patron-exclusive book club on Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time. I'm just now realizing how much I'm uh, how much I'm doing over the course of the next week. It's going to be a fascinating and frantic week of work. And then, crucially, next Saturday, this is not quite set in stone yet, but if you guys are interested, as I know many of you will be, if you guys are interested... There will be a patron-exclusive live commentary track slash discussion of the 1999 adaptation of A Midsummer Night's Dream as a part of... It's, it's an extra text that I'm throwing in for the students of the Between Worlds class, but I'm opening up to all the patrons of Point North Media. Whether you pledge your support over on patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia or at coffee, uh, ko-fi.com slash pointnorthmedia or paypal.me slash pointnorthmedia... Just hesitating there over the name of my own company. That's fine. It's been a long day, you guys. Uh, however you pledge your support to, to Point North, uh, you'll get access to that live commentary track, which should be 
really fun, really fun, I think. So sign up for the newsletter over at Point North or head on over to the forum, sign up there. Or join me tomorrow morning, in fact, for the This Week, uh, this week at Point North live stream, which takes place at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Uh, every Monday. I, I just hang out for 20 minutes or a half hour and talk about what's to come in the coming week. And by that point, all the schedule will be fixed. It's not fixed quite yet. It's mostly fixed, but there are a few pushpins where there need to be, you know something more powerful than pushpins? I don't know. Is there anything more powerful than a pushpin? I'm going to duct tape the schedule in place is what I'm going to do for the course of the next week. Thank you all so much for joining me for this discussion of Faramir. As I say, we'll catch up with the rest of Chapter 5, Chapter 6, and 7 next week. We'll do what we can to get through it all. It has been an absolute pleasure. I will talk to you all again very soon. Take care. (laughs) Fly, you fools. (laughs)